0: Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market.
1: You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it.
0: All right, Sheena, we have a bit of a celebration today. Do you know what it is?
1: We do, we hit a pretty big milestone.
0: We did. Which is share? personally
1: rewarding. Yeah, we have actually hit 10,000 unique listeners of our podcast.
0: Yes, we have. The crowd is going wild. I couldn't resist using a little bit of the sound effects.
1: Oh God, we have to with that. Yeah, we have that <laughs> fancy roadcaster. <laughs> Gotta you make make use of some of those sound effects. I
0: have been waiting like thirty episodes to finally use the sound effects. <laughs> but yeah, we had ten thousand unique listeners, which is awesome. I want to say thank you to everyone who's tuning into this episode, past episodes, future episodes. Um, that was really cool. We didn't set out, you know, to necessarily hit some sort of. You know, target, but it was really cool to check the dashboard. I think it was last week and see that ten thousand people have tuned in uh, to hear our interviews.
1: Um, so, thanks again to all of you for tuning in and listening to our amazing guests, and of course, Devin and I's commentary along the way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, it's been a fun couple months, uh, and it's just cool to see that people are you know enjoying it and enjoying more episodes as they tune in. So, thanks to everybody, and of course, big thanks to uh, all our interviewees who stopped by. And speaking of interviewees, this week we're hanging out with Matt Rosenberg, who's the CRO of Compass. And as you, I think we talk about a little bit, but uh, me and Matt actually go way back. He hired me at my previous job over at Eventbrite. So if you hear us uh, getting kind of chummy in the very beginning here, uh, we know each other pretty well.
1: Yeah, he has some fond memories of you, so it was fun to hear that from him. <laughs> you had a reputation even a few years back, uh, which uh, holds till this day.
0: <laughs> that is true. That is very true. And yeah, he's he's such a good guy. He's one of the few folks. Like, I think like during your career, you meet a couple people that you'd probably follow them, kind of no matter where they go and what they do, right? Uh, admittedly, even when I saw you move to Compass, uh, if I wasn't happy at Gong, I definitely would have seriously considered, but. He's one of those folks that, uh, one of those people that, you know, great leader, really humble and just someone that you, uh, you know, want to be associated with.
1: For sure. For sure. I could tell that, um, during our conversation and I'm always going to remember recording this episode because I had to, you know, we're working from home, obviously, I had to go into my closet because there was no other quiet space in my house. And my closet is not huge. It's pretty cramped. It's tight. Um, I was squatting on the floor and it was really hot in there. (laughs) So I was just kind of praying that I wasn't going to pass out while I was squatting in this small closet with my laptop and microphone and all the gear in there.
0: That is commitment. And that's the type of dedication that gets you to 10,000 listeners. (laughs) <laughs> and I had no idea until you told me now. So maybe listeners, you might be able to hear uh, some different acoustics from Sheena Zen, but I think you did a great job.
1: That's what some of the NPR uh, hosts are doing these days is, you know, going into really cramped places, like even under their comforters to remove some of the echo. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was just being like a, a real pro, you know.
0: You are. You are a pro. Uh, well, cool. Let's go ahead and dive into our interview with Matt Rosenberg. Matt Good to talk to you again, man. Thanks for uh, stopping by Reveal. It is an absolute pleasure, and it's more of a pleasure to be speaking with
2: you again after a long time, so great to to chat with you.
0: And as a little background, uh, in case you don't cover it in our intro, uh, Matt and I go way back to our Eventbrite days. Matt actually uh, hired me. I was prospecting you to to buy some sales technology uh, that I wanted to sell to you, and you responded and you said, I have no interest in that technology, but if you want to come work for me, let's talk. Uh, and that was that was the beginning of our relationship. And then we ended up working together on the sales org uh, for about a couple of years.
2: Yeah, I remember it well. I remember getting the prospecting video, watching the video and thinking, wow, OK, um, I certainly don't want what this guy's selling, but I want this guy. And so I remember calling you and trying to turn the conversation around and was successfully able to bring you to, to Eventbrite and uh, really enjoyed enjoyed working with you there. So, yeah, it's great to catch up again.
0: And that probably shows how good of a salesperson you are. That I was reaching out to sell you something, and you turned around and sold me a career. So, kudos to you, and I'm still thankful for it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's let's get into our icebreakers a little bit. You know, we'll, we'll, before we dive into some of the uh, more meteor things, but uh, you know, I'm curious. You're you're here in the Bay Area as are we. Um, how have you been holding up with shelter in place?
2: Yeah, we've been doing fine. Um, you know, obviously, um, I think it's an adjustment for everybody, but, um, we're doing well. I have three teenage children. So the biggest challenge with shelter in place with teenagers is to break their social tendencies, which has been a bit of a challenge. Um, homeschooling is out the door. It's basically we've given up on any schooling and they're on their own on that front, but, um, we're all healthy and it's actually nice to have the family time, believe it or not. Like we're really, Enjoying all being under one roof. Um, And it's actually very nice not to be traveling as much. I think when you're a sales leader with large national teams, you tend to spend a lot of time in different places. And just to be home and centered and focused has been quite uh, quite a nice change, I think, for everybody. So we're we're all enjoying it.
0: Now, I imagine when you're working from home with a, you know, house full of family, there might be some uh, funny stories or maybe some surprises that have popped up in the past couple of weeks. A- any uh, any stories worth relaying?
2: Yeah, I did. Um, I was on. I, I have a routine. Um, I try very much to hold myself to the routine. Um, and it involves waking up. I wake up very early in the morning. I tend to work out um, and then I start my day fairly early because we have, you know, uh, people all over the all over the country, so I'm sensitive to the East Coast. And so I walk in my office, I start my video calls, and it's in, it's a relentless stream of video calls. But I will pop out, uh, you know, periodically in the day just to check in on everybody. And I came out, and one of my sons decided to um, give himself a mohawk. Um, so he found a razor and decided <laughs> to shave his uh, his sides back. Uh, and so that was a surprise. He told me all his friends were doing it. And so there he was uh, in all his glory with a um, with a Mohawk. So <laughs> that was probably the biggest surprise I've had thus far. Other than that, um, you know, I think everybody's just just doing their own thing and and getting through each day. I love it. Love it.
1: So you graduated from law school at Northwestern and, and you were a lawyer for a few years before getting into sales um, as one of the first employees at people C- PC. What prompted you to make this decision? And what were some self-reflection that you may have had during that time?
2: Yeah, so um, I graduated uh, law school um, and I went to work for a very large law firm. It was a corporate law firm. I was doing uh, mergers and acquisition work, a little bit of IP work um, and a lot of soul searching. Uh, And I think, you know, when I came out of law school, I really, really appreciated the law school education, but I went to law school because I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, which I would not advise my kids to do. I did it. Um, And it served me well in the fact that I enjoyed the legal education, but the actual practice of law was not a good fit for me. You know, my personality, I'm I'm much more outgoing, really enjoy people, enjoy connecting with people. And what I found myself doing every day was walking into a beautiful office, wearing a suit and tie with a secretary outside the door and just reviewing documents for hours. The relentless document review that you have to do as a young M&A attorney was was numbing. And frankly, like it was scary for me to be in a large law firm with amazingly talented, bright people, none of whom I wanted to be like when I grew up. And that was a very scary revelation for me. And so You know after a few years of doing that i knew like i just this is not the life i wanted to lead this was not the person i wanted to become um no knock on the legal practice it's a it could be a wonderful practice for some but for my personality it it wasn't the right fit so i started networking and talking to people to try to find what else could i be doing and i fortunately met a met a founder of a company that had sold that company to microsoft was starting another company that company was people pc as you mentioned um, I happened to be out in San Francisco for a friend's wedding. Uh, he agreed to meet with me. It was very cliche. We met in Palo Alto over coffee. Coffee turned to dessert. Three or four hours later, after conversation, I went back home after the wedding. He called me two days later, offered me a job in San Francisco for uh, 40% of my pay um, and a bunch of stock options and gave me 24 hours to decide. I had just bought a brand new home in Chicago with my um, then fiance, now wife. We just had a puppy and she just got the job she loved in Chicago. And she looked at me and she said, I think this is what you really want to do. I support you doing it. So we literally accepted the job, sold the home and was in San Francisco. Um, I went out ahead of her. Obviously, was there a week later and started at People PC and it set me on. A very different career trajectory, obviously. So that was um, that was the beginning of my my career in sales.
1: Did you find anything that was uh, transferable that you had learned or uh, developed while you were a lawyer that you were able to bring into your immediate uh, job afterwards, or that you still reflect on now that you feel you learned during those days?
2: Yeah, I'm so incredibly grateful I went to law school, and I think there's so much that I carry with me to this day that I apply daily from being a lawyer. Um, first and foremost. You know, as a lawyer, particularly one in a large law firm um, where you're doing work for partners, you you really were you really learn about work product and the value of quality work product. And that's the same when you're dealing with clients. You're representing yourself, you're representing your company. And you need to be precise with your word choice. You need to be precise with your written word, your spoken word. And law in a lot of respects is about influencing and negotiating and discussing hard topics and not being afraid to challenge. And so those are all things that I think expert salespeople need to be doing. And so from a salesperson's education standpoint, you know, most people don't think about law school as a great uh, breeding ground for wonderful sellers. But. You know, you have to be, particularly in enterprise sales, incredibly analytical. You have to be an amazing listener, and lawyers are that. And you have to be deeply probing. And then you have to be able to clearly and concisely communicate issues and concepts and translate ideas into action. And that is what salespeople do. So for me, you know, I do carry many of the lessons, both of law school as well as the legal practice, into what I do day to day. Um, And it's actually interesting because over my career, I've certainly come across other lawyers um that are in the business world. And when I'm sitting across a table from a former lawyer, I may not know it, but I could sense it pretty quickly. And then there is just a common discussion that happens, which is like, hey, did you by chance go to law school? And and invariably nine out of 10 times the person I asked that question to has gone to law school, which is interesting. So there is certainly um I think a lot of a lot of relevance to the legal education to sales.
0: About a year ago, I jumped from sales to marketing, um, and in the same company. So not not a huge leap, but what felt like a big leap for me, uh, and definitely had a lot of things to consider. You had a much larger leap. I'm curious, what about the offer, or what about that change? What did you gravitate towards? Or in other words, what was kind of the X factor where you knew, hey, this is what I want to do, despite the risk? I'll broaden the
2: question to um, I'll, I'll broaden the question a little bit. I mean, I think any time um, there's an opportunity to make a change. Um, I think those are wonderful, just developmental moments. So for me, it wasn't about the compensation; it was about the opportunity. And over my career, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have you know a lot of different opportunities put forward. And and you know, and, and the more scared you are taking the opportunity, the more the opportunity is probably right for you. And I just think that thesis on career management, career development is always a good thesis to have, which is If someone believes that you could do something, even though you may not have the background in it, do it and prove them right. And then you'll prove to yourself a lot. And I think, you know, life's all about collecting experiences. Life's all about challenging and growing. And I think growth comes from accepting new challenges and taking risks. And so, you know, when I started that first job transition from law to um, the business world, I was in business development. And so I was structuring Partnership deals. I was helping the company raise capital because that was a little bit of my background. And along the way, um, I started to, you know, help position the product into the market. And I began to learn, wow, like this sales thing's pretty hard. It's very interesting. And I wanted to learn more about it. So I, I dug into it and then ended up actually carrying a bag and then got into sales management and then. You know, my career, I've ran marketing teams. I've ran product engineering teams. I run customer support, customer success. i here in my current job. I'm responsible for M&A, expansion, um, as well as sales. So I just think, you know, when you're thinking about managing your career, um, sometimes, you know, just saying yes and embracing the new opportunity, the new challenge um, is really a, a wonderful thing. I don't think there's a lot of downside in that. And so it should never really only be about the financial consideration. It should be, you know, and I always advise this to people that work for me. I say, look, like when you take a job, if you're going to take a job with me, one of the first questions I'm going to be asking you is, how is this going to help you get to your next job? And what does your next job look like? Um, Because I do think you ought to have, you know, sort of a a view of where you want to go. And, you know, indexing on a broad range of experience and new opportunities typically will help you get to that place faster um, than anything else you could do. So. Um, Hopefully that gives you a a perspective on how I'm thinking about it.
0: And uh, you you started to touch on your current role, but let's dive into that a little bit. And maybe before we do that, for the folks who haven't seen a Compass sign outside of a house for sale, maybe you could just touch on what exactly Compass does and uh, and then dive into your role as CRO.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So um, Compass is a, a real estate technology company. We offer a uh, end-to-end platform for real estate agents to run and operate their business on. And then we provide around the platform a host of services to real estate agents. Um, and so Compass is a real estate brokerage, but it's really driven by its technology and its service. And so real estate agents, um, is, they're one of the largest classes of entrepreneurs in the country. Um, they you know, very much are, are successful small businesses. Um, and they're all looking to figure out how to grow um, grow their businesses. And so there hasn't been a lot of innovation or technology in real estate to service the real estate agents. There's a lot of point to point solutions, but very few integrated uh, platforms. And so what Compass has done is we've built out a very large um, and very experienced product and engineering team. And we are building that platform for the real estate industry. And so it's managed to attract a number of high-quality agents. There's about 15,000 agents now at Compass, um, all of whom are leveraging technology, leveraging the service we provide to support their business and growing, growing their business on the platform. So that's um, that's what Compass does. Uh, it's a few thousand employees, 15,000 agents, and is really a, a, I think, a terrific, terrific growth story.
1: I'm curious. Um, you know, of course, the market. If you just look a couple months back, beginning of 2020, it was super hot and Um, there's been an increased amount of uncertainty in the market. And I'm sure home buyers and sellers are all kind of waiting on edge and waiting things out. What are your perspectives on the future of real estate? If you look towards, you know, through towards the end of 2020 and beyond Um, what are you seeing from, from your end?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, So You know, we obviously sit on a huge, huge amount of data. So we're able to get some pretty definitive and early signals as to what's happening in the real estate market. I think as we got through um, March and even into the early days of April, um, activity was still really high in terms of home closings. And that was, you know, sort of a lagging indicator that those were um, contracts and homes that were for sale earlier in the year that were just closing out. I think now we're starting to see, the impact of, you know, the various markets shelter in place where, you know, it's it's hard to, it's hard to do open houses. It's hard to list homes. I think a lot of agents are holding back on bringing homes to market until May or until the day to which, you know, there's more clarity around when markets open up. Um, And so I think you're going to have in the real estate, I'm speaking residential, not commercial, because that's our area of focus. Um, I think you're going to have a challenging Q2 and that you'll have, you know, downward pressure. We're seeing that in lower number of listings uh, coming to market, which is a precursor for, to closed, you know, closed deals. And so I think you'll see, you know, pretty dramatic slowdown towards the end of April, May and into June. Um, I then expect a pretty healthy rebound as markets open up. Um, You know, markets are opening up into a very low interest environment, which is terrific. And the thing about real estate that's different than a lot of markets, you know, when Disneyland, as an example, closes, um, those are lost ticket sales. Disney will never get those ticket sales back. In real estate, it's a deferral of transactions. And so people will always need to find homes. People will always relocate. Um, There's still, you know, there's it'll be a backlog of homes that are coming on the market. And so it's a deferral of activity that'll that'll defer into sort of summer, early fall. But if you look at China as an example, um, their sales were off 85 percent during their shutdown and then they spiked right back up once markets open. And now they're trending at about 10 percent below um, the pre-COVID days. So pretty, pretty quick bounce back for that market. So we're obviously studying the European countries that are starting to open right now. And looking at the data and 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 forecasting what's going to happen in our business, but in talking to our agents, you know, our agents are top top agents in their markets. Um, They expect a, a very healthy and robust robust rebound.
1: Given these changes, have you had to shift any of your priorities or get creative as you're thinking about the initiatives that you're working on with your team?
2: Yeah, we have. I mean, it's basically a reset for a lot of our agents. So, you know, I think all great companies in times of crisis tend to gain market share. And I think, you know, great real estate agents gain market share because they take this moment to, you know, really figure out how to leverage technology, really figure out how to reach out to their sphere of influence and market themselves. And the same can be said of any great company. And I think, you know, at Compass, we're we're doing the same. I think, you know, we have the very good fortune of being a technology business. So we we were able to operate virtually, whereas a lot of our competitors shut down. And so, you know, our product and engineering team, they're they're continuing to accelerate the product build. My sales organization is able to continue to accelerate their efforts as you know, I think our clients are taking stock of where they are and what what solution is going to serve them best. Um and then as a business, I think like every business, you know, you're sort of recalibrating your expense against your revenue. And as you expect to see revenue decline, um, as it starts to decline, you have to rationalize expenses, which challenges you. To reimagine how you operate the business, how to streamline the business, how to renegotiate contracts with, you know, everyone from landlords to service providers. But, you know, at the end of it, I think companies come out stronger for it. And I think it's, um, you know, it's just an exercise that that I think all, all great companies are going through.
1: Yeah, agreed. I think you get to uh, you figure out how to operate more efficiently, cut out some excess things that were not necessary for the business to run in an effective manner. So it's a good time to reevaluate things that you're doing for your team, for your business, how you're engaging with your customers, and as you said, like the winners will come out strong, even if it's a difficult time today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and for us, I mean, you, you're you may see this as well in, in the data you're seeing, but like. It's been really interesting uh, the concept of multi-level selling in a virtual environment. Um, you know, our biggest challenge is we have you know offices all over the country. We have a leadership team that's very very busy. But now, you know, because we're working off in in on video calls, we're able to have leadership pop in uh, pop into more and more calls than they've ever been able to pop into before. So we can leverage our CEO differently. We can leverage myself differently. We can leverage our head of marketing and you know really do a lot more sort of multi-level C-suite selling um, in a way that we've never done before. And, and that matters, that's impactful. We're able to demo our platform in a different way and I think a more effective way in a remote environment through screen shares where I think our prospects are engaging more with the technology than sitting in a conference room, for example. And so I think there's been a lot of, lear- a lot of really good learning and then I think outreach and the cadence of outreach for us has shifted. Um, I think, you know, obviously when you're in a crisis mode, you have to be careful with your messaging. You have to be sensitive with tone. So we spend a lot of time just meeting, meeting our prospects where they are and ensuring one, that they're safe, two, that they're, they're happy and and not pushing, but really adding value and and dropping, you know, insights and knowledge and perspectives to help them, whether they're a compass or not. You know, it's, I think everybody's job to help each other in these times of, of global crisis. And so we've really, I think, changed our approach to to market that way and i think it's proved effective and i think it's just the right human thing to do
0: for this week's data breakout i found it interesting that matt's team has relied heavily on multi-level selling or team selling in response to the shift in economy and selling landscape for longtime listeners you might remember this stat The Gong Labs team analyzed more than 53,000 sales calls and found that team selling, defined as bringing just one other person from your team onto a sales call, correlates to a 258% increase of winning that deal compared to if you fly it solo. That's a huge leap, and clearly Matt knows this and has implemented it for his sales process. And specifically, he said he's looping in his internal executives, like his CEO and head of marketing, to demo his platform more effectively. This works because not only is he aligning experts with his buyer's journey, but he's also tapping into the authority of the C-suite, which naturally raises the conversation to a strategic level, something that might work for your sales process as well. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and look back at at Avembrite. When you joined the team, I believe you were initially brought in to help build out the global revenue function. And then that ended up being um, focused also on global expansion and a few acquisition channels. I'm curious kind of what that was managing that change, and when you look at how successful it was, what kind of you know what were the pillars of success? what was kind of the core strategy that allowed you to to do so successfully?
2: yeah, um so it was interesting when I came to eventbrite as as you as you outlined um, the the original sort of job scope was layer on a sales revenue organization on top of their current go to market, which was then self sign on so these were event organizers that came to Eventbrite would sign up and use use the software, um, use the platform and, um, and run and operate events. And the charter was to layer on a, sort of go to market sales motion on top of that. And then as you know, quickly expand um, and do so globally. And so I think, you know, any high growth scaling company, like one of the biggest challenges is just definition of customer set. And I think, you know, one of the first things that I think Eventbrite had to do was define who its customer is, who the target was. And so in the universe of people that could use Eventbrite, it could be anything from a very large music festival to a small music venue to a fundraiser for a school. So that that means there's a huge perspective, Tam. But as I think we've all come to learn and appreciate, focus delivers results. And so one of the big challenges with Eventbrite was just defining what are the customer segments that we wanted to address with the sales channel? And so we ended up you know, breaking down the the, the total TAM into four different segments and then within those segments, sub-segments. So the first thing we need to do was a customer definition issue, which I think every sales leader wrestles with, which is who is my customer? How do I focus the resources I have to drive the most return for the least cost? And then the next question was, how do you speak to them? Because each of those segments wants to be spoken to a little bit differently. The buyer personas are different, so there's a lot of persona definitional work that, that I think has to happen. Um, underneath all of that was the next exercise. Well, I shouldn't say next. It was simultaneous, which was building out a sales methodology and process that mapped to the segments you were going after. And that had to be not only in building out the actual methodology and process, but mirroring that in Salesforce, building out the tech stack in a way that you could see the data and not only scaling you know the the sellers, but building a sales operations team that could interpret the data because you're constantly iterating, right? You're trying to figure out what's working, what's not. You're looking at the data and trying to understand where are those, you know, those signals and where they're not. And then where those signals lean into the signal, expand slightly from that and continue to, to gain gain market share. Um, and so those were the first first things we did. We then had the next challenge of where to expand. And so again, it came down to figuring out. Where does the product worst work best? Where is the best product market fit? And so expansion, when you're working in a software world, you know, you need to be really careful that you're not overextending the product beyond where it is today. And that you have a clear roadmap and alignment with product and engineering to build if you want to move up market in a way that you're hearing clients and building for client needs. And that's a whole different challenge because, you know, you're investing P&E resources, which are the most precious resources a company has. You're investing it to do something. You, may, you, you need to make sure that that investments going to unlock the most market that can be captured by your sales process, motion and team. And if you're able to do that, you'll expand upward and outward. And so those were all the things that um, I think were the initial challenges uh, in the Eventbrite um, environment. So I'll, I'll pause there because I just felt like I went on a long time.
0: You did, but it was awesome. I was writing a ton of notes down. <laughs> it was it was really interesting to, to listen. I didn't want to interrupt you at all. As you're going through that motion, and you kind of touched on it in the beginning Matt, like you you've led a lot of different types of teams, and this is a very you know strategic uh, project or initiatives. I'm curious if um, you know kind of looking back, what you said like your your strengths that you learned maybe from law school as you kind of got started in sales. Like, what were some of the, those skills, or maybe even just the mentality that you had that helped? make some of those decisions.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the mentality you have to have is is one of um, just, I, I think it's empowerment of the teams you build. Because, um, you know, I'm not going to know the answer. And I don't know the answer. You just have to, and this is I'm taking a big step back, but, you know, hiring really great People and great leaders that can listen well to clients that could process lots of data and come to conclusions and, in, and empower the teams to be able to take risks and fail. I mean, that is what all sales leadership strives to do, which is build out sort of that infrastructure of leaders that can capture signal, process signal and that you're able, you're able to embolden to the point where they're willing to you know, take risks and miss and fail, and because that, that's where the learning comes from, right? You, you do gain a lot more learning from trying and failing oftentimes, um, and it's how you capture the learning and apply it that really determines can you scale quickly or not. You know, there, there are plenty of people that come in with a playbook. You know, I, I think I, the one thing that I'm always struck by is how many sales leaders so I have a playbook, and I'm gonna install my playbook here. And it's like, well, how do you install a playbook into a new environment, a new company, when you don't actually know what the customers say, how they think, how they act, who the team is you're going to be hiring? Like it just doesn't seem to make sense. Like I I I very much believe in having a framework and modifying it for, for the business. And I don't think that comes from anything other than having a very innate natural curiosity and, you know, being very humble and acknowledging when you make mistakes and be willing to step in front of your team, in front of your CEO and be like, yep, we, we messed up. It's on me, not my team on me. And then you get great work out of people. And if you're hiring the right people and they feel safe to do the great work, they're going to figure it out. And so I'm very much a empower the people you hire, give them the safety and comfort to do great work and then great results will happen. And so I don't think there's any magic in that, but I'm constantly struck by how hard it is for a lot of sales leaders to do that. I think it's because they want to control a lot and control the environment, but there's not a lot. A lot of it happens fast and it feels like it's in a little bit of an uncontrolled way and that's okay as long as you're processing the signal and empowering people. So I don't know if that was a little
0: too esoteric, um, Devin, but that's, that's how I think about it. I will take esoteric from you anytime. No, that was that was enlightening.
1: So Matt, you know, I think for many folks, they would look at you at least look at your profile on LinkedIn and consider that you've made it, right? Like you're CRO of a successful uh, company that has raised millions of dollars and has thousands of employees. But I'm curious, from your perspective, how do you feel about your own personal and professional development? And what are you looking to continue to grow and develop as you look at your own, uh, you know, your own skill set and your own goals and ambitions? That's a great question.
2: I I, I would, I think there's a lot of measures of success. So I appreciate, um, you know, the the perspective that I've made it that I've been successful. I I think in every job and every challenge you enter with insecurity. So, yeah know I'm, I'm insecure in my job at at Compass, and I don't mean insecure that I'm worried about my job. I mean insecure that I could do the job. I think that level of insecurity is a healthy thing. Like I think you want to you know always feel like you're a little bit in, in over your head. And I think when you feel like you're in over your head, you're probably in the right spot. And I love that feeling. I love feeling like, wow, this is a big job. There's a lot at stake, a lot riding on me on the decisions I make. And I think that's something that we should all strive for because I think it it helps you sort of just always push yourself to develop and and you challenge yourself in in different ways that way. And so when I think about where I want to go next, I mean, I, I love what I do and the way I sort of characterize what I do is I get brought in by businesses to solve really complex problems. I get brought in by businesses to build amazing teams and I view it as my goal to Help my team develop and the development could be in the actual functional thing that they do. The development could be setting them on a career trajectory that works well for them. It could be helping them get their next job that's better than the job they have today. And I always say to my sales team, look, like I know I've made it as your leader when all the recruiters start calling you. When they start calling you, that's the mark that I've done my job because now we as a team are known as the best sellers in the industry. Now, I don't want them to take the job, but I want them to take the call. I'll always say, Mm -hmm. take the call from the recruiter, absolutely talk to them, um, hear what they have to say, and look, if they have a better opportunity than the opportunity I can give them, I tell my team, come to me, talk to me, and if it's better, I'll tell you. I'll say, take that opportunity. If it's not, I'll tell them why I think it's not, Um, but I I, I really do love that part of my job, and I think when I think about where I want to go next... It's, you know, if you look at my resume, I've never worked in the same industry twice. I've worked in all sorts of sales models from SaaS to heavy enterprise to volume and velocity to self sign on to, you know, complex ROI based selling. It's been everything from services to platform to marketplace. Um, I just like to continue to look for hard problems that when you crack the code and win, it's a great win condition for everybody. Everybody really benefits from it. And so, you know, hopefully I'll be at Compass for a very, very long time and will continue to experience the success we're experiencing. Um, But when I think about my next job, it would have to fit that kind of profile um, because I, I get a lot of value and a lot of reward out of that. And then I think the people on the team do as well. And so, you know, the legacy for me is a team of people like Devin, who I've worked with before, who I have a ton of respect and admiration for, whose career I follow, who know that I'm a resource for them. If I build that network of future leaders, that's great. I feel like I've contributed back to um, the world in a positive way.
1: I I love that uh, perspective, you know, always learning, always striving. And then the aspect of giving back to your team and seeing them be successful um, is rewarding in and of itself. I have a a follow up, uh, you know, somewhat related question. Um, As CRO, you're dealing with some of the most complex questions and business problems that your company is dealing with. How do you stay sane and not be overstressed? What are some tips and tricks that you have used and implemented over your career?
2: Yeah, I have to say um, I'm not, I haven't been very good at this over a long period of time. Um, I, at first, you know, when I was, I mean, I, I really do um, try to find balance, but it, it's a, it's a constant struggle. And what I always think about is like there's it's ebbs and flows in business and stress levels. And so, you know and it's also it's cyclical. so there's moments in a business where you're just crushing it, you're feeling on top of the world and and I always try to remind myself, you know the the bottom's coming, you're gonna it's gonna fall out and you need to be prepared for the downward ride. And what you're doing in times of strength is preparing for that moment of weakness in a business. And so it helps level set you and you never get too comfortable with success. And if you have that mindset, when you go down into the trough, you've built the infrastructure to get out of it. And I do think there's certainly. It's particularly in today's business cycle, things go from good to bad, to bad, to good faster than we've ever seen before. And so that creates a lot of stress. So I try to center myself by never being too high, never being too low, because realizing it's an inevitable truth of business, there will be ups and downs, and you need to prepare for the down when you're up and, and realize when you're down that you'll get back up because the work you did when you're up. On a personal level, which I think was more of your question, um, recently, you know, I've really taken to trying to stay in a routine so I noted it early in the call but um you know for me like I've become a bit of a fitness zealot not that you would know it by looking at me because god I think I should get better return for the investment I make but I also love consuming food so it's a trade-off but um recently I've always been a big a a big mountain biker I got into running because I thought that you know being in, in sales I love the metric I love trying to beat a number and running was always something I was terrible at. So I got really interested in it, set big goals and try to hit them until my body started to break down and I pivoted back to cycling. And now I'm I'm a huge Peloton fan. Um, I just love, (laughs) I love my Peloton. It's my sanity in the morning. Um, so that's, that's what I do. And then of course, you know, making sure that I'm in touch and touching base and feeling connected to my kids and my wife is, is always, you know, first and foremost for, for me. So those are all the little
0: cool things I'm doing.
1: Yeah, the, the Peloton is something that you and you and Devin definitely have in common.
0: <laughs> oh, we do, I uh, was going to say, Matt, what's, yeah. your us- what's your username? I'm going to follow you.
2: Oh, really? Uh, well, if I put my username out here, we may get more than one follower. I hope so. So it's, it's, it's uh, <laughs> uh, Embrose20. Feel free to follow me. But listen, d- you know, don't, think, don't feel like you need to keep up with my output. It's huge. Um, anyway. oh i'm sure
0: i <laughs> I just want like um you know if if you, if you strive to be like michael jordan you know you'll you'll end up in a great place I imagine if I follow you and just strive for your greatness i'll i 'll still find myself in a better place.
2: I will say, like, my, my kids tease me a lot, particularly because um, everybody's home now. Like, they'll hear, like, I work out in the morning, and my, my son's bedroom is next to where the Peloton is. And they'll be like, God, you make so much noise on that bike. And I have the, I have the headphones in because it's early in the morning. I have no idea. I'm grunting, occasionally yelling. But, yeah, apparently I do that. So um, I just hope they never activate that little camera at the top of the Peloton. I don't know what it's for or why it's there, but um, I hope they never turn that on.
0: I am, uh, if you hear me laughing, it is because I had the same feedback given to me earlier this week where, uh, my wife's cousin lives with us and he's next door to our Peloton. And I did the, uh, one, the, the, the grunting is good, by the way, I say that's, that's pain leaving the body. That's how you know you're getting better. Um it's about seven in the morning for them. So they could care less, but, uh, so I can definitely relate the the fun one too, is when you start doing the weights with the bike. Uh, and I've I've definitely hit the ceiling and the wall a few times. So
1: (laughs) I just call it a wake up
0: call. (laughs) Uh, well, Matt, let's wrap up. We, We wrap up with the same question to all of our guests. And the question is how would you describe sales in one word?
2: Wow. All right. Uh, one word, how would I describe sales? Um, I would describe it as invigorating. Can I give some rationale? I think helping a customer solve a hard problem um, is truly invigorating for them and for the seller. Um, You know, that that feeling you get when you know in your heart of hearts that you've just given somebody a solution that maybe invigorating isn't quite the right word, but it's the concept I want to capture. Like, I think that's just such a wonderful, wonderful feeling.
0: I love it. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Given all your answers and then, and some of the wisdom you shared today, that, uh, that definitely makes sense and adds up. Well, Matt, thank you again, man. We appreciate your time. We appreciate you stopping by and uh, hope you and the family are staying safe and productive and uh, hopefully we'll cross paths again sooner than later.
2: Yeah, you guys as well. It's a real joy to talk to you and uh, stay
0: safe and talk nice. to you soon. Every week, we bring you a micro action. It can be as simple as something to think about or an action you can put into play today. And today... I wanna run with what Matt shared about accepting new challenges. And since most of us have more time on our hands these days, let's make that new challenge around self-learning. Have you ever heard of the five-hour rule? The five-hour rule involves spending five hours a week or one hour each working day focused on deliberate learning. This means setting aside time to give your full attention to learning and development without getting distracted by other work. And I know it's tough at the end of a long work from home day to want to crack open a book or commit to online learning. But here's the thing, I recently committed to it and wanted to share with you all because the results have been undeniable. I'm thinking clearer, ideas are flowing, and it all stems from this new methodical input of information that's relevant to my work and career and also enjoyable. And the great part is, it's not about hitting goals but about adding more time every day and every week until you've built a habit around that five hour per week mark. Me personally, I only hit three and a half hours this week, but I definitely feel a sense of accomplishment compared to if I hadn't at all bonus tip, download the app toggle spelled T O G G L to time, your learning activities. It helps keep track at the end of the day and the end of the week. So you can see how you did and improve on it week over week. If you give this a try, we'd love to hear how it's working give us a shout at reveal at gong.io or hit Sheena and I up on LinkedIn. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday.
1: And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there.
0: And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then.
1: And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.